Thank you so much, Mark, for the introduction, and thank you, Dr. O'Donnell, for inviting me, and thank you to all of our esteemed guests here for being here for this talk. I figured we'd actually start off with that prayer that, I don't know if you still have it with you, that we got at dinner last night, but that's the prayer I always start my classes with, and I thought we could start with that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, lofty source of all being, graciously let a ray of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of our understanding, and take from us the double darkness to which we have been born, sin and ignorance. Give us a sharp sense of understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant us the talent of being exact in our explanations and the ability to express ourselves um, uh, with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, help in the completion. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The theme for our weekend here is St. Thomas as the answer to a culture in crisis. And I hope I'm not revealing anything that I wasn't supposed to when I say that uh, an earlier draft of the title for the weekend was St. Thomas a tonic for our times. And I don't know what this says about me, but my first thought was, oh yes, St. Thomas is the tonic to St. Bonaventure's gin. And together, <laughs> together they make a nice theological cocktail. But I'm sure that wasn't the original intent. Um, a tonic, not only do we have tonic water, but St. Thomas here meant more in the older understanding of the word as medicine. And if we look to the Britannica Dictionary, it defines a tonic as a medicine that brings you back to a normal physical or mental condition. And doesn't our culture need to be brought back to a normal mental condition? But if Aquinas is our medicine, we need to be able to properly diagnose our pathology in order to know how to use that medicine well and effectively. Now, it's easy to identify many of the symptoms that our culture suffers today, anxiety, loneliness, depression, suicide, mutilation, and dare I even say, insanity. Perhaps one of the sources of these symptoms, as Dr. Donald said in his talk last night, is a misunderstanding of what it means to be human. Not only have we lost the sense, um, not only have we lost the sense of the human being as made in the image and likeness of God, but we've also lost the understanding of the great excellences that the human can achieve both by nature and by grace. In other words, we have a pathological misunderstanding of virtue. When it comes to virtue, our culture responds to it in a variety of ways. I think the most common way of responding is by not responding at all. Our culture just doesn't talk about virtue. It's something we don't hear in our everyday conversations. If you ask most people what a virtue is, they probably wouldn't be able to give you an answer, maybe no fault of their own, it's just not talked about. So that's a common way our culture responds to virtue. If it's not ignoring virtue altogether, sadly, it's often mocking virtue. There are many comedy movies out there that make jokes about chastity belts. Even in superhero movies, there was a recent one with Captain America who embodies virtue, but the other superheroes made fun of him for not using curse words. Right? It was, it was treated as a character flaw in him, which doesn't make any sense. So sometimes the culture uh, ignores virtue, Sometimes it mocks virtue, and sometimes it just reduces it to these little platitudes or sentimentality. We've all heard the expressions, patience is a virtue, virtue is its own reward. I'm sure we've all seen or even have those decorations in Hallmark that say faith, hope, and love. Now, none of those are bad, right? All those platitudes are rooted in some truth about virtue, but the problem is when it's reduced to just sentimentality, just a nice feeling as opposed to a reminder or an inspiration of the need to pursue those virtues. 
what is virtue then? If our culture doesn't understand what virtue is, if they don't uh, respond to it well, what is it? Well, most simply, virtue is an excellence of human character. But this excellence is grounded in the human nature we are given by God and developed through the human life most excellently lived. This lends virtue a perennial character. Human nature has not changed from the time of Adam until our time today. The natural law has not changed. Christ redeemed all of us because the human nature he assumed is that same human nature we have from Adam until the end of time. Therefore, the same virtues that St. Thomas discussed in the 13th century are the same virtues we must strive for today. Aquinas can be the answer to our culture in crisis because his solution is the solution to every crisis in history. If we find our culture in crisis, it is because we've forgotten the very truths that he taught. In this talk, then, I want to focus on two main ways that our culture misinterprets virtue and then show how St. Thomas Aquinas can help rectify that misunderstanding and help us to come away with a proper understanding of virtue. <clears throat> this will help us to identify our cultural pathologies and then know how to heal them. It will arm us with the tools to convert our own lives so that we can then work toward the conversion of our culture. The two misunderstandings or the two ways in which our culture twists the understanding of virtue, what I want to focus on are that our culture presents both false virtue and false virtues. So on the one hand, our culture gives us a false general understanding of what a virtue is, and then on the other hand, our culture presents us with specific qualities that they claim to be virtuous that St. Thomas would not agree with. Let's take false virtue in the singular first. I don't know if you've heard of the phrase virtue signaling before. Now, when I first heard it, I, to my knowledge, it's, it's a more recent term. When I first heard it, I, I figured it was something positive. Oh, yeah, signaling virtue. Of course, we want to be spreading virtue and talking about virtue and all that. But I was wrong, right? Virtue signaling has a negative connotation. If we look it up in the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary, it defines virtue signaling as the act or practice of conspicuously displaying one's awareness of and attentiveness to political issues, matters of social and racial justice, etc., especially instead of taking effective action. So to summarize that, virtue signaling is to flag that you're aware of some social or political issue, but then not doing anything about it. Virtue signaling, therefore, has a negative connotation, but you can have virtue signaling in a variety of ways. You could virtue signal about positive and good things, for example, the pro-life movement. This is a good cause. We should all be supporting it. But you could merely virtue signal. Right? You could just say, I'm just going to put a bumper sticker on my car or, or, or something like that, and that's enough. Right? I don't need to do anything more than that. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to um, make the right donations. I don't need to encourage people and evangelize. You might just leave it at that. So that would be virtue signaling of something good, something positive. But we also see virtue signaling of, of negative things, things that we shouldn't support. So uh, we just finished the month of June, and our culture tells us that June is Gay Pride Month. And so you have all these corporations putting up all these rainbow flags and rainbows everywhere. Now, some of them are fully supporting the agenda, but others are just virtue signaling. They put up the flag. That way they know people coming by, they'll say, oh, they, they support it. I'll come in and I'll buy uh, their goods, and they just make money off of it. And as soon as July 1st comes, it all comes down. Now, I don't want them to support that agenda, but what that shows is it's, it's just virtue signaling. They're saying, we're aware of this agenda, and we're, we're, we're 
making it seem as if we support, but really we just want your money. This is what our culture, this is how our culture understands virtue today, this virtue signaling. Virtue is reduced almost to a social credit score. You are virtuous if you pay respect to the right agendas and movements. And that's as far as it goes. Now, St. Thomas teaches that virtue isn't an occasional act or a bandwagon trend, but rather a habit of the soul, a perfection of our character. It's a description of our character, and it involves many things. Right knowledge of what is good, first of all. So you have to make sure that you know, it's the right cause that you're supporting. You have to have right knowledge of what is good. You then have to choose to pursue that good. Now, sometimes we choose to do a right thing, but then at the last moment, our emotions pull us away from that. So not only do we have to know the good and choose the good, but we have to perform the good, and then finally, enjoy it. I think that's the hardest part. But St. Thomas says that when we have all of these components together, when we know what is good, we choose what is good, we perform it, and we enjoy it, then we have true virtue with the hallmarks of acting with ease and promptness and enjoyment. We can act promptly because we don't have to deliberate about it anymore. We've already discerned what the good is. We act with ease because we're not at war with ourselves. Our emotions are in line with our reason. And then we act with enjoyment because our emotions are in line with our reason. We actually enjoy doing the good. We would prefer it to other activities. These, these virtues are formed by the repetition of good acts that are both deliberate and voluntary. We have to choose to act in these ways, and we have to do it with frequency, and we have to keep pushing ourselves to act beyond the level of virtue we have so they can continue to grow. But St. Thomas also notes that there are many ways we can still do the good without being virtuous. I want to be clear here that we're not saying that it, um, the examples I'm about to present are bad. We're just saying they're not quite virtue. People are still doing good things, but we do good things for a variety of reasons. Sometimes, he says, we do the good out of mere routine or unthinking custom. Oftentimes, it's a good start to virtue. You have to get used to doing the right thing. But we also see examples of perhaps children who learn good manners, but then they're only doing it because, well, that's what I've always done, and that's what my parents told me. But they haven't yet internalized it and understand why is it that I'm doing this? Why, what is good about this activity? We see this a lot of times with professional athletes, sadly, as well. You would assume that they have temperance because of their, and self-discipline, but then they retire and they fall to pieces because they hadn't internalized what was the true good that they were preserving there in their fitness and their eating habits and, and all of that, their obedience to their coach. So sometimes we do the good simply out of routine or custom. That's good. It can be a good start for virtue, but it's not quite virtue. Sometimes we do the good simply out of coincidence or chance. Um, there have been a number of times where people have come up and thanked me for things that I didn't even realize I did. Right? So it, maybe I was even trying to do the opposite, <laughs> ended up uh, working out in their favor. So that's good for them, but I couldn't count it as virtue for myself. And then sometimes we do the good because we're forced to. We're under duress. Uh, there's a punishment for not doing the good or, or somebody in some way um, dangles a carrot so that we do the good. Whether it's duress, whether it's coincidence, whether it's custom, Aquinas says these are not yet virtue. None of these penetrate into the person's character. They're all easy to change dispositions, and the person has not yet internalized why the actions are good and made them their own. So for St. Thomas, this is what's necessary. There needs to be a true grasp of the good, not just what is good, but why is it good? 
a choice for that good because it is good in that understanding, and then an enjoyment of it. This is all that comes together for virtue. Is it difficult? Absolutely. But with God's grace, everything is possible. God gives us the grace in order to pursue these virtues and to attain them. But this is a far cry from the virtue signaling that we see in our culture. The virtue signaling that says all you have to do is raise a flag, all you have to do is put on a bumper sticker, and then your work is done. Right? That's a far cry from understanding what is good, choosing it for that very fact, and enjoying it as well. That's the false virtue that our culture presents us. But our culture also presents us with false virtues, specific virtues that they hold up. Now, St. Thomas followed a long tradition of a, acknowledging certain cardinal virtues. And these cardinal virtues were not named such because of the color or the bird or even the ecclesiastical office, but it's for the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. The moral life hinges on these virtues. If we describe virtue as an excellence of character, well, when it comes to the human person, we have a lot of different capacities that we have control over. We have our thoughts, we have our choices, and we even have control over our emotions to an extent. Prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, these virtues all come together to perfect all the different aspects of our character that can be formed and shaped by reason. That's why they're the cardinal virtues. Every other virtue we can imagine, patience, chastity, um, obedience, all of them depend on those four virtues. But in addition to those four virtues, St. Thomas also presents to us the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. These virtues that we receive in the state of grace that are infused in us by God that help reshape our worldview and reform our virtues so that we can act for the heavenly kingdom. That's what St. Thomas gives us. What our culture seems to take as the cardinal virtues are sincerity, authenticity, and tolerance. So I want to say a little bit about each one and then how St. Thomas can help us have an accurate explanation of those things. Because sincerity, authenticity, and tolerance aren't intrinsically bad. They, they can be good in many circumstances. But a virtue is always good. A virtue is a good-making quality. So anything that could be used for good or for bad can't strictly be a virtue. St. Thomas will help us to understand the proper place of sincerity, authenticity, and tolerance. Let's start with sincerity. Society tells us today that whatever we do, we should really mean it when we do it. Now, that's not so bad of an idea. If I'm doing the good, I, I should mean it. It would be one of those other examples that I just gave, if I didn't mean it, it would be coincidence, or it would be routine, or it would be duress, or even hypocrisy, perhaps. But when society tells us whatever you do really mean it, there's something else that they're implying here. Maybe there are two things that they're implying. On the one hand, they imply that we should stop doing any activity that we don't mean sincerely. If you're not really feeling it, then just don't do it. On the other hand, they may be implying that we can justify almost any act as long as we're sincere when we do it. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you sincerely meant it or you meant the good when you chose it. Now again, it's true that having good intentions is an important and in fact necessary component to a moral act. We simply can't be virtuous if we're intending evil, right? So we do need to be sincere about intending the good. It's also true that it's better to fully intend a good action rather than to perform it half-heartedly in an unthinking or routine way. However, we also know that phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We can't justify any action simply by being sincere about it. 
Aquinas doesn't list sincerity as a virtue because, again, you could be sincere about doing something evil. St. Thomas teaches us that intention alone does not make an act morally good. Before any consideration of intentions, we must examine whether our course of action is itself moral. This is what St. Thomas calls the object of a moral act. His claim is that since we are rational beings, there is an intelligibility to the things that we choose. Nobody acts randomly. If we choose something, it's for some further end. But some choices uh, can never be rationally chosen for authentic human flourishing or excellence. This is what the Catholic tradition names an intrinsic evil. Things like murder, abortion, genocide, adultery, contraception, that these activities can never be rationally chosen for the end of human flourishing and excellence. They can never truly be ordered toward the good. Somebody might think they can be. They might have a false understanding of the good or a misunderstanding of it. But in reality, they cannot be. So these would be evil and object. What St. Thomas teaches us is that before we even get to intentionality and sincerity, which are important, we need to look at the objective aspect. Intention is subjective. The object is objective. St. Thomas highlights the need to have diligence, therefore, in forming our conscience so that we can accurately distinguish between good and evil objects so that what we intend is, in fact, good. Now, that's all that, that if you can remember, I have said a lot of things, that second way that our culture uh, means this, do whatever you do, make, make sure it's sincere. The second way is that they want to justify any action. St. Thomas responds to that by saying, no, you have to look at the object first. But the first thing I said, um, if you don't mean something sincerely, you should just abandon it. St. Thomas has a response to that as well. He says that the first step to becoming virtuous is to do virtuous acts, even if, perhaps especially if, we don't feel like it. Our culture is telling us, if you're not sincere, then don't do it. It's not really you. St. Thomas says, if you ever want to be virtuous, you're going to have to start doing actions that you might not feel like doing. But that's the first step toward virtue. We want to get to that goal of enjoying the good. Along the way, though, we, we're not going to have that for some time. But we still have to persevere. We have to act beyond the intensity of our habit in order to strengthen that habit, like weight training. You have to lift greater weights. You have to lift them more times in order to build the muscle. Well, the same with our virtues. We have to uh, extend ourselves. We have to go outside our comfort zone. We have to push ourselves so that we can act with greater uh, intensity of the of habit with greater good so that we can develop that virtue. So whereas the culture says to abandon activities that we don't, where we don't act sincerely, St. Thomas says the only way to become sincere about good acts is to start doing them. You have to start somewhere. But this leads us into the second false virtue that our culture presents to us, authenticity. The reason why our culture tells us to abandon that which we're not sincere about is so that we can be authentic to ourselves. I'm sure you've heard many of these slogans before. You be you. Follow your truth. Make yourself. These are the messages that we're hearing in our culture today. We are told that the way to be sincere and to live our authentic selves is not to live how other people expect us to or how other people want us to, but to be true to ourselves, to make ourselves to determine our own authenticity. But if we choose a life of sin, can we ever truly be authentic? Do we determine ourselves? 
Or are we called from the moment of conception to a vocation to holiness and living out the image of God with which we're made? Sometimes people accuse those who want to grow in virtue of hypocrisy because you must act in a way that you are not in order to develop a new habit. And this is a really important distinction to make here. Right? We, don't wanna, we don't wanna be hypocrites, that's a bad thing. Some people accuse those who strive for virtue of hypocrisy. Oh, you're just trying to, you're pretending to be patient, but you're not really patient, I know you. I know who you really are. Well, first of all, the pursuit of virtue isn't hypocrisy. A hypocrite is one who feigns to be what he is not with no intention to become such. It's the person who is a fraud and wants to defraud others, but wants other people to think he's honest so he can keep defrauding them. That's the hypocrite. They don't want to change. They want people to think that they're different and acceptable so they can keep doing what they've always done. But this isn't true for the person who wants to grow in virtue. They may not be virtuous yet, but they want that virtue. If I'm a coward and I desire courage, I have to act in courageous ways in order to become courageous. But while I'm trying to do that, I'm not yet courageous. That doesn't make me a coward. That just means I'm on this trajectory toward the virtue of courage. A person pursuing virtue wants to become the thing that they are not yet. They're not trying to trick others. They want real conversion. So it's not hypocrisy. But secondly, we can say that our authentic self is only lived out when we imitate Christ and live in accordance with the image of God in which we are created. As the Second Vatican Council taught, and again, as Dr. O'Donnell mentioned last night, the theme of St. John Paul II's pontificate, Christ reveals man to himself. If we want to find our authentic selves, we need to find Christ. Our authentic self can only be found through the life of virtue in conformity with God's commands and grace. We don't have the ability to determine ourselves, and a life of sin can never be our true self. I want to take a little aside at this point because this is such an important concept. What does it mean to live in the image of God? What does it mean to conform to Christ? I don't profess to have the full understanding of that. I'm still trying to learn it myself. But I think if we reflect on this for a second, we're made in the image of God. So we're in the image of God. Well, who is God? God is Trinity. And in this Trinity, we have three persons in one essence. But the great question is, how? Right? How are there three persons in one essence? What does this mean? Well, we can't know it entirely. But there are ways that the tradition has tried to work out at least what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean that there are three persons in the Trinity? How are they distinguished? Are they distinguished by substance? Well, that can't be, because then we'd have three gods. That's the heresy of tritheism. <coughs> Are they distinguished by accidental qualities? Well, that can't be, because then that means the Father is something that the Son doesn't, and the Son is something that the Father and the Holy Spirit don't. And this would be the heresy of partialism. Are they distinguished by their roles that the Father creates and the Son redeems and the Spirit sanctifies? No. All three persons create, all three persons redeem, all three sanctify, that would be modalism. Then how are they distinct? Well, a lot of the tradition talks about and focuses on their relationships. What is the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, within the Trinity, we have this communion of persons giving of themselves fully to the others and receiving the others fully back. So the Father is Father because he gives himself to the Son as a Father in a paternal way. And he receives the Son in a paternal way. And the Son gives himself to the Father in a Son way, a filial way, and receives the Father in a filial way. And likewise, the Father and the Son 
give themselves the Spirit and receive the Spirit back. So why am I going on about all this? If that's God, and God is this communion of persons emptying themselves out for the others and receiving the others fully back, in God there's kind of, this is not technical language, but there's a, a sort of dying to the self and a living for the other. So if we're made in that image, then to live out the image of God, we also need to die to ourselves and live for God and neighbor. Now this is terrifying. I don't know about you, but I like myself. So the thought of dying, the thought of um, kind of eliminating myself and, and just putting myself out there can be intimidating, can be scary. But what we find as we die to ourselves and live for God and neighbor is that that's when we really discover our true selves. That's when we find who we really are because that's when we're living out the image of God to its fullness. When we are to be conformed to Christ and we are to be another Christ to others, what did Christ do? He laid down his life for all of us. And he said there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for another. So if we want to be authentic, the culture is saying, you be you, determine yourself, turn inward, focus on yourself. You're number one, look out for number one, don't worry about what other people think. But that's going to be a false sense of self. It's not going to be who we truly are. But when we come out of ourselves, die to ourselves, and live for God and neighbor, that's when we actually find ourselves. And losing ourselves this way, we find ourselves. We discover our true self. Christ reveals man to himself. It's, 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 it's difficult. It's a mystery. But this is what we need to follow. If we are to be authentic, that's where we discover who we truly are. That's when we partake of the divine nature, as St. Peter says in his second letter. That's when we um, discover who it is that we are. We're known through the knowledge of how God knows us. We become most truly ourselves. So that's the path to true authenticity. So let's recap before we get to the last virtue. How do we be, show true sincerity? We form our consciences to discern good moral objects that we can intend. How do we show true authenticity? We stake our identity in Christ and through the life of virtue, strive for greater conformity to him. Now the third cardinal virtue of our culture, tolerance. Our culture tells us that we must be tolerant of others, of their ideas, of their preferences, of their choices. Now again, there is a time and a place for tolerance. Sometimes parents have to tolerate their children's behavior because their children need to learn certain lessons and repercussions for their actions. Sometimes God tolerates us, right? He, in fact, he tolerates all of our sins, but not that he commends them, right? He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't want them, but he tolerates them for a greater good. We find that the tolerance proclaimed in our society is not a two-way street. It's typically tolerance in one direction. We must tolerate evil, but we can't tolerate those who oppose that evil. But the bigger problem is that it doesn't end with tolerance. Tolerance gives way to acceptance, and acceptance must give way to advocacy. And we certainly don't want to be advocating evil. As with sincerity and authenticity, tolerance, as I said, is not inherently bad. But sometimes we can't tolerate. Sometimes we have to correct. While Aquinas counsels that we should tolerate good differences, legitimate differences that we have between people and ideas, sometimes even tolerating slight misdemeanors for the sake of peace, he teaches that we can never tolerate grave evils. When St. Thomas writes about the virtue of charity in his Summa Theologiae, 
in all of its acts, he talks about the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. And he says that, absolutely speaking, the spiritual works are more important than the corporal works. Now, circumstantially, corporal works can be better. Uh, we don't want to have somebody right, starving on the side of the road, and you've got all this food with you, and they say, please, can I have some food? And you say, I will pray for you, right? That's the moment where, where we feed them, and the corporal work is more important. I would say also pray for them. But he says, absolutely speaking, the soul is immortal. The soul, um, all the choices we make in this life have everlasting consequences. So the spiritual works are even more important than the corporal. But among the seven spiritual works of mercy, the one he singles out, which may both be surprising and maybe um, disappointing <laughs> to some of us, is fraternal correction. Right? Not even praying for the living and the dead, he singles out fraternal correction. As he's going through his treatise on charity, he talks about charity, different aspects of it. He talks about the acts of charity. He talks about the um, works of mercy. And then he has a whole question, eight articles dedicated to fraternal uh, correction. Beyond that, he has a whole set of disputed questions just on fraternal correction in another work. So he sees fraternal correction as so important to charity. Now, what might be the connection there? Sometimes we correct other people because we want to boost ourselves, right? We want to puff ourselves up and show like, oh, I'm not like that person, right? I, I've got it all figured out. That's not what he's talking about here. That would just be vainglory. Um, he says that fraternal correction is one of the greatest acts of charity because it removes evil from another person's life. When you correct somebody, they might not know that what they're doing is wrong. Remember we said before that you have to be able to discern good and evil moral objects if you're ever going to be sincere or even authentic. Some people might not have that knowledge yet. So fraternal correction can help remove the evil. And he says whenever you remove evil, you're actually procuring good for another person. So I think perhaps the reason why he focuses on this is that it's an immediate, has the immediate effect of bringing about good in another person's life. But fraternal correction is difficult, not only because we need courage to do it, but there needs to be a certain tact. There needs to be a right approach to it. If we go around correcting everybody all the time, nobody's ever going to listen to us, and then we won't be able to correct anybody. St. Thomas gives us ample advice on how we should fraternally correct. I'm not going to go through all of it here. He has eight articles right, discussing it, and what if it's a superior or an inferior, these different relationships. But the short of it is he turns to the Gospels. He turns to our Lord, who gives us advice himself. Jesus, in two places in the Gospels, gives us specific advice on fraternal correction. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, remove the beam in your own eye before you remove the speck in your neighbor's eye. St. Augustine had a, another expression. He said, every time you point your finger, three more point back at you. How often do we correct other people and accuse other people of the very things that we're guilty of? Now, that's not to say that we can't correct them for that, but what it means is, the person's going to receive that correction all the better if they see we're working on it too, right? If we are sincere about doing the good, perfecting ourselves, and then in love, trying to help our neighbor grow in virtue as well. So that's one bit of advice Jesus and St. Thomas give us. The other bit, uh, later in the gospel, Jesus gets even more practical. He gives sort of a step-by-step -step process for correcting. He says, first, you should try to correct the person in private. Because if you just humiliate them right off the bat, they're going to be resistant. You probably won't convert them. So first, you talk to them in private. And you may have to do that a few times. But if it's not working, then you have a sort of private intervention. 
you bring two or three other witnesses. Maybe the person thinks you just have to get them and correct them. They don't like you. But if a few people say, yeah, we've all seen the same thing, well, then maybe they're going to take it more seriously. But if that doesn't work, eventually you might have to publicly call out um, the correction. Maybe that person needs a little bit of embarrassment in order to change their ways. And last of all, Jesus says, somewhat strikingly, if they still won't convert, and this is a grave sin, we need to cut them off to excommunicate them. Now, not as an end goal of just wiping our hands of them, but sometimes people need to see the full gravity of their sin in order to have that will to change. So anytime somebody's excommunicated, it's with the hope of bringing them back. Right? It's never just to get rid of them, to cast them off. It's always as a medicinal means, last resort. St. Thomas then gives us this advice. What does it mean to truly be sincere? What does it mean to be truly authentic? And what should we be tolerant of? When does tolerance have its place? By way of conclusion, I would just like to say that St. Thomas has the tool set to counteract both the false virtue and the false virtues that our culture um, teaches us. St. Thomas teaches us that what true virtue is he teaches us what true virtue is, that we must only be sincere about doing the good, that our authentic selves can only be found in conformity with the natural law and with Christ, and that tolerance must sometimes give way to correction. But he does not only show us where the culture is wrong, he also shows us the path to positive transformation, first of ourselves and then of the culture. He teaches prudence, the habit of being able to discern what the virtuous action is. What is the good that I should pursue at any different moment? He teaches us justice, the habit of giving what is due to another person. He teaches us fortitude, the habit of either overcoming or enduring obstacles so that we don't abandon what is good. He teaches us temperance, so that we can moderate our desires and our pleasures so that we're not distracted from what is good and that we, in fact, do enjoy what is good. In addition to these cardinal virtues, again, he presents us with the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, how they unite us with God, how they open up a new worldview so that now all that we do by prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance can be for a supernatural end. The beatific vision, heaven, life with God, rather than just a true but imperfect happiness in this life. These are the virtues we must pursue. These are the virtues that will heal our culture. And I'm very humbled to say that each of you has received a copy of my book where I discuss seven strategies for, um, for growing in virtue that comes out of St. Thomas's thought. So I would like to see this talk as more of kind of an introduction, uh, a starting point. We're able to diagnose the pathologies, the symptoms that we see in our culture. St. Thomas is the medicine. To learn more about the medicine, um, I feel weird saying this, but I've got more to say in that book. Um, <laughs> so there are seven strategies there, and, and these should be the ones um, that we use to pursue this virtue, and this can be the starting point for healing the culture. The journey toward virtue is a journey we must all travel together so that we can help the culture to heal and prepare for the time when God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So with that, thank you very much, and I'm open to any questions you have. Mr. Brown.
Sure. Yeah, that's great, and, and it immediately reminds me of another area where there's a similar sort of question. Whenever we talk about mortal sin and the conditions for mortal sin, we say, well, it has to be grave matter that we chose with full knowledge and deliberate consent. The question is, what does full knowledge mean? Do I have to have a PhD in moral theology? Like, am I the only one here, right, that can commit a mortal sin? And we don't want to say that clearly. Um, so the level for, for full knowledge when it comes to mortal sin is going to be lower, right? If you're aware the church teaches that this is a grave matter and that, that, that's sufficient for it. So I'd imagine that when it comes to virtue, it can't be this comprehensive understanding of the good, first of all, because none of us has that, but second of all, um, then virtue would just be so far out of reach for most people. When St. Thomas talks about virtue and stages of growth toward virtue, he does present us with stages. He basically takes Aristotle's six and reduces it to four, but he'll say that, you know, the opposite of virtue is vice, and this is somebody that probably does know the good, but doesn't choose it and, and doesn't enjoy it. They enjoy acting against it. Uh, anecdotally, when you talk to people and their conversions coming from life of sin, many times they'll admit, I knew that everything I was doing was wrong, but I did it anyway. Right? So they only have some knowledge. So there's already some knowledge there, right? but they clearly don't have a comprehensive knowledge. Now, above uh, vice, you would have incontinence, which is somebody who knows and chooses, but then their emotions pull them away. The continent person who, who's doing good actions, they're close to virtue. They know what is good, they choose it, they perform it, but they don't totally enjoy it. Virtue is a stage above that. But what I want to be clear about is virtue isn't this like line that you cross, and once you've crossed, like that's it, you have virtue. Virtue, Christ was virtue incarnate, right? God is virtue transcendently, and the virtues are one in him. So if God's infinite, that means there's infinite progression toward virtue. So it's not enough to just say, like, all right, I made it. I have virtue. Even the virtuous person has room to improve. So I would say, to go back to your question then, um, you can have varying degrees of virtue, that you could have um, virtue simply by knowing that this is good, not fully understanding why, but you know that it's good, and that's enough, and you're pursuing it for that reason. That's going to build virtue. But then if you are able to internalize more, I think there has to be some level of internalization for it to truly be virtue. But um, the deeper that internalization goes, I think the stronger the virtue will be. Another question. It's a great question. There, there are a few things I want to parse out. First, I'm sorry, I, I, I should have been clear about habit before. Habit's a tricky term, because when we think of habits, we have a colloquial understanding where habits are typically bad habits, things that we do on thinking. So locking your car three times. Like, it was locked the first time you pressed the button. You didn't have to press it two more. Um, you know, bad habits of biting your fingernails or whatever it may be. When St. Thomas, the Latin word is habitus, which is why we say habit. But for him, a habit is not those sort of bad routines. A habit is voluntarily, rationally chosen, something we've deliberated on. So that's the first thing I want to clarify. But to your point, um, 
How do we know that we've reached that point? I think I want to say two things about that. One is that we look to what St. Thomas said is requisite for a virtue, that we are doing, uh, we know it is good, we're choosing it, we're doing it, we're enjoying it, we're acting with ease, promptness, and enjoyment. I would say if we do an examination of conscience and we find that these things are true, that look, the way I'm living is in conformity with the catechism, it is in conformity with scripture and the teaching of the church, that I'm probably doing what's good, I'm enjoying doing it, I, and I'm not doing it just because I, like, because I wanna get good feelings out of it, but just like, I wouldn't wanna do anything else. Those would be good indicators that you have that virtue. So you have that on the one hand. Now I suppose the vicious person also enjoys what they do and do it with ease and promptness even. So it's sort of an inverse of, of virtue. So this is why it's always good to have perhaps a spiritual director or somebody um, that can be an accountability partner, somebody that can call you out if, if um, you're, you're going down, straying down that path. But the second thing I wanna say is there isn't that moment when you're striving for virtue where all of a sudden you say, I've got it. It's kind of the problem of a pile. Like if you just have individual things and you start to put them into a pile, at what point do you have a pile? You can clearly see in hindsight like, oh, there's a pile of stuff right here. But when does it become a pile? When there's seven things, when there's five things, when there's 13, right? You can't quantify that, but you can see it in hindsight. I think virtue is often like that, where as you're going through the process, there's not gonna be this moment where all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, I did it, I have courage. But in hindsight, you're gonna see like, wow, I'm, I've changed. I used to act this way, but now I act this way. And it's sort of in hindsight that you would see that you have that virtue. Um, so I don't know if that's disappointing because you don't have that moment of, of, of but because it's so gradual and, and being internalized, I think that increasingly you just will be filled with greater joy or greater freedom as Professor Brown said earlier today. Um, so it's not maybe the most satisfying answer, but I think it would really be, it's sort of something we see in hindsight by examining ourselves and then looking toward those hallmarks of virtue that St. Thomas mentions. Dr. O'Donnell. I heard you comment a little bit on the relationship between discipline and virtue, mm -hmm. because it seems that a lot of times in modern culture, we will see some in, we'll associate discipline, like the athlete who's really disciplined physically, or a musician who's really working as if a great musician, they'll say, those people are virtuous. Mm -hmm. And even when we're discussing, like, Yes. It's such an important distinction. I gave the example earlier about all these athletes and the tragedy of they have, they seem to have this great discipline. They do exactly what their trainer tells them. They're eating right, they're exercising right, but then they, they retire and they get addicted or, or they become overweight or whatever it may be. Where was the virtue? And what I would say, and I think what St. Thomas would say is that discipline is more of a skill than a virtue. So virtue is always a good making quality. There's never, there, there can never be a, a, a place where courage makes you worse or courage um, makes other people worse. That courage is the wrong thing to choose. Now, sometimes we can go beyond the virtue. St. Thomas teaches that every virtue is opposed by at least two vices. What does that mean? Well, if virtue is what's reasonable, the vices are either what falls short of reason or what goes beyond what's reasonable. So for courage, we usually think of cowardice. Well, that falls short of what's reasonable. But there's also the vice of foolhardiness. That goes beyond 
what is reasonable. I like to give the example of a firefighter. So a firefighter has courage, typically. If you ask them, are they afraid of a fire, they say, yes, I am. But I know how to moderate that fear because I have the right training, the right equipment, the right team, and so I can go in and pursue the good. That's true courage. It would be a coward for a fireman to run away when he gets to the fire. But foolhardiness would be like me walking down the street and uh, I see a burning building and I have no training. I don't know what to do besides stop, drop, and roll. But I think maybe there's a baby in there. So I just run into the building. Now it's kind of tricky about some vices is they can look like virtue if you succeed. So if I come out of the building with a baby, everyone's gonna say, what a hero. But really, I just got lucky. If I die in the building, they're gonna say, what an idiot, right? What a fool for going in there. There was a sign that said set for demolition. Like, why did he not read that? Um, Right, so we have these vices, and they can sometimes appear as virtue, but they're always good-making. That's the point I was trying to make, that virtues are always good-making qualities. Skills are more situational. Skills are certain um, expertises that we can develop, but they're only good in certain contexts, but even then they can be used for a morally bad end. For example, you could have a very well-disciplined mass murderer that ties all the knots and everything so that he never gets caught. Well, that's not virtue, right? It's a skill. Um, well, <laughs> I was going to say, we might, we might say I aspire to his self-discipline, but I, I don't even want to go there with an example. Um, but see, it's a skill that can be used for good or for bad. So discipline helps us to grow in virtue. I think we need to be disciplined. We need to employ that skill in order to grow in that virtue. But the discipline itself is not the virtue. Just like when it comes to the other virtues, St. Thomas, he gets quite complex. He starts with the four cardinal virtues, and he says, well, they all have these sub-virtues, like uh, patience is a type of courage, and um, chastity is a type of temperance. But then he says, there's also these parts that need to come together, even for the act of the virtue. So for prudence, for example, he says, you need to have memory, and reason, and understanding, and shrewdness, and right? But all those are sort of skills, because an evil person could also use those sorts of things. So I think discipline falls into that category where it's a skill that might be necessary and requisite for growing in virtue, but it itself is not the virtue. So we wouldn't want to stop at just discipline. Thank you. Going along with what you're saying, is there a book that he's written that lists these virtues and then the vices? I mean, how there do, is. I mean, how do we know where to go? The Summa Theologiae, but you have to do a lot of digging. <laughs> I mean, that would be you know, more concise. Yeah. I could stand up here all day and talk about it because um, I just love it and love talking about it. But I, I don't know of any book offhand that goes through them all. If you, I can give you my email later. I know that Father Ripperger has a list of all the virtues. Um, but to my knowledge, maybe Sister knows or do you know? Sure. That gets you started. I don't know how in-depth he goes, but there, I've counted, there's like over 80 virtues that he names <laughs> in the Summa. Yeah. Okay. Joseph Pieper, P-I-E-P-E-R, P-I-E-P-E-R. The book is just called The Cardinal Virtues. And he's a, he's a, he's a Thomistic author, so he will be in the thought of St. Thomas.
Did you, what was the quote? The opposite of faith is certainty? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you want to respond first? Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, um, I, I, see, I see where the quote's going. St. Thomas, when he talks about faith, he'll distinguish faith from knowledge. He says there are many different intellectual activities we can have. Knowing, um, opinion, suspicion, thought, and, and then belief. So for him, he would say that belief, faith, Right, it's not the same intellectual activity as knowledge. However, he, he does say uh, another thing about faith, that while belief is not the same as knowledge, he says, objectively speaking, faith is more, more certain than even the knowledge we have by reason because its source is God, who's truth itself. Now, subjectively speaking, our faith might be less certain than knowledge, right? Because our faith as a virtue can ebb and flow and we can doubt and lose faith and things like that. But he would say, objectively speaking, because faith comes from revelation, faith comes from what is heard, faith comes from God as the source, then it, it's actually more certain than even like the knowledge that I have of, I don't know, the one plus one is two or something like that. So I see where it's going with, with opposite, meaning like if you think of certainty as knowledge, well, then they're different activities, right? If, it, if it's knowledge, it's not faith. But even then, I would want to say that for St. Thomas, faith and knowledge there's some continuity between them. Because as St. Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is charity. St. Thomas elaborates on this and he says, well, why? Because the charity that we receive in this life and develop and, and receive continues in the next. Faith and hope pass away, but they pass away to something greater. And what hope passes away is to enjoyment, the beatitude vision. Faith passes away to knowledge of God. So it's no longer belief, it's knowledge. So if the faith in this world gives way to knowledge and life to come, there has to be some continuity between them. But if we're just focusing on this world and we take knowledge for certainty, then I would say, yeah, that, that makes sense, that you would have um, knowledge and in, in faith as these different activities. Yeah, that's a good point. So again, as opposites, faith requires, St. Thomas says, even though it's a virtue perfecting the intellect, it requires a movement of the will. The will must cause the intellect to assent to it. Whereas if you see something by clear demonstration, the intellect automatically assents. So that would be a way in which they're opposite.
come up with different logical ideas about things, and that struck him like, oh, I'm never going to, you know, and that's part of why there's some controversy about who the Eucharist interprets, right? Mm -hmm. Let's take it and see if that's actually a different part. Then it's not faith anymore. Mm -hmm. Then you have scientific proof, which could be disproved, and therefore might actually endanger our faith, mm -hmm. right? So I know there's that out there, um, but I think I know what you're getting at. Some people would go, if you really know, then you don't need to have faith. Thank you, Dr. Whitmore. Thank you, everyone.